Hi, everyone. Welcome to Then Again with Ken and Glenn. We're sitting here at the uh, podcast table <laughs> in the inner sanctum of the History Center. Many people may not realize that podcasts are handcrafted at tables, and that's what it's, we're it's, doing. It's an artisan thing we it do is. here. It's not just your mass-produced <laughs> that's podcast. That's right. We are here uh, on Thanksgiving Eve Eve uh, in the middle of November, but uh, we have just had a lot of programs and things go on here at the History Center about the centennial of the end of the Great War on November 11th. So I think we're going to talk a little bit today about the Great War, the world it made, what it was like, what it wasn't like, and, and all the things that most people, especially Americans today, don't realize how important this struggle at the first part of the 20th century was. When it began, and this is true of most wars, the belligerents, the parties involved in the fighting, may think they have a certain short-term goal or an objective that they've gone to war for, and these things can often morph into ways that they did not dream of happening. And this is very true of, of what we call World War I or the First World War, but you know the Great War, as it was referred to at the time, because this starts out as just what looks like another replaying of, ah, the same old European powers fighting each other for the same old goals. Primarily, France and Germany, once again, going at it to determine who's hegemon in Europe on the continent, you know, with a little added side action of Austria-Hungary fighting Russia. Two incredibly large empires or nations that are really bad at fighting by this time. In the sense of <laughs> having cohesive objectives that they achieve. Well, yes. Now, I'm not saying that, they're, that the frontline troops, especially the Russians, aren't good at enduring horrific hardships. But once again, it's that classic European power balance, power well, shuffle, I, I, that turns into something quite unexpected. And, and you know, I think, I think it's fair to talk about, I mean, World War I was really Germany fighting against France and Britain. Yeah. And eventually the United States. Russia obviously was involved. Many empires were involved, but uh, most of those other empires, well, the uh, Austro-Hungary, it became very obvious about a third of the way through the war, and this is what the Germans used to describe the Austro-Hungarian alliance they had, they were chained to a corpse <laughs> because it was such a liability to have them as That's allies because they had to send supplies, they had to send resources, they had to send troops that they could not afford to detach from the Western Front or from anything else. and right. And so... You know, Germany had allies in the war, especially at the beginning, but honestly, what it ended up with was obligations. Right, right. Obligations that, that they continued to try to meet, but it really was just Germany, and it's kind of amazing what they were able to achieve in terms of maintaining an army in the field and maintaining it with food supplies and munitions, which they did. They did. They absolutely at, did. At the cost of home front privations that most guys on the front didn't realize until late in the war, and they're going home on leave, and they're seeing just how bad it is at home, and they're starting to wonder, what are we fighting for? Yes, is it all worth it? Right. You know, the beginning of the war, these, these things are a powder keg that had been filling up for well over a decade, and it was just the spark of Franz Joseph being assassinated in Sarajevo, and then the alliance system kicks in, and... You know, I would be remiss if I did not jump in with a quote from George Washington at this point. <laughs> would, <laughs> noted scholar. Would, George you, Washington, <laughs> noted scholar of World War I. No, but, uh, it, but what Glenn says about all of these, all of these alliances, the different leagues and alliances and, and entente cordiales, all these things going on, 
underscore what Washington says in his farewell address about not becoming involved in entangling alliances, that you will be drawn into a war that you do not want to be in. And this is the advice he's giving the nascent United States in 1796 and 97. You're going to get drawn into things you don't want to do if you get into these alliances. Uh, and that's, I think, part of that advice is echoing down through the ages in Wilson not getting involved earlier or getting the United States involved earlier than it did. It was, and he, you know, he was very popular because of that. He was elected to a second term. And, we, and when we say Wilson, we mean Woodrow Wilson, President of the United States. Yes. Just, just, <laughs> just in case people aren't keeping Clarify up with things. We, yes. Glenn and I t tend to get the bit in their mouth and run. So anyway, as Glenn was yeah, saying. So, so he had been elected in 1912 in one of the most interesting elections in, in history. Everyone was a progressive. Everyone saw progress in the future and, and societal change and societal improvement through the power of an expanded federal government, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, because of that progressive scope, he and his Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, thought that it would be a good idea to stay out of the war. And um, the United States went to great lengths. And like I said, he was reelected on the fact that he'd kept the United States out of war. Well, Germany and its unrestricted warfare and use of submarines to sink merchant ships and the rules of that new type of weapon were gelling and no one quite understood it. Long story short... If Germany had had a few more submarines and had really cut loose for most of the war, there's every possibility they could have at least taken Great Britain out of the war, therefore created a negotiated peace. As, as a matter of fact, uh, Winston Churchill, who I hope you all realize was a, a wartime leader in World War II and World War I, uh, British, when he's, he's talking after, the, he's being interviewed by someone uh, after World War II, and they're talking about the U-boat menace of World War II, which was pretty severe. And he's, he was asked a question, something along the lines of, you know, did you think they ever had you truly on the ropes? And it was, and it was the end was in sight. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, no. He said, it's, it's World War I. He said, I thought those bloody submarines would do us in. You know, they, it was at one point in World War I, I believe it's, there were seven weeks worth of stockpiled food rations in England. Yeah, it, it was that severe, and they were, and and the German U-boat fleet was sinking ten percent of the British merchant fleet every month. Yeah, you can't keep <laughs> up with losses. You cannot. Like you that. absolutely cannot. And, and so, you know, Glenn alluded earlier to at the start of the war for the first couple of years, the German Empire does not do completely unrestricted submarine warfare because they don't want to bring the U.S. into the war. They know that that's, some, that's an issue that could do it, especially after the Lusitania, that famous liner that was sank early in the war. But they, at one point, they decide, we're going to do it, and we're going to bank on the fact that we can bring Britain to its knees before the U.S. either comes into the war or gets enough material and men over here to make a difference. And their math was wrong. <laughs> but not by much. Not by much. But not, not by, by much. much, but it was wrong. But it did, but, that's, but that bears in, it, it should be pointed out that the European powers, is, you know, France and Great Britain certainly welcomed these new American co-belligerents, not allies. Right. But they were surprised by how quickly the Americans mobilized, how quickly they got that many men over there, and then how well they did when they actually fought. Yes, and, and you know, mobilizing the men was the easiest part because Wilson 
had tried very hard to keep the United States out of war. He had not taken steps to get America ready for war as the lesson was learned later on by Franklin Roosevelt. He promised to keep the U.S. out of war, but he also started... C- kind of began... He, he began ready. boosting up industry and shipbuilding. Air- Wilson did not do this right. because he generally believed that we, we were going to stay out of the war. So we were able to get a million men over to France in about eight to ten months, but the problem was it was just the men and their rifles. Machine guns, tanks, aircraft, artillery, artillery shells, everything was generally provided for the U.S. by the industrial capacity of France and Great Britain. We simply were not able to tool up in time to to have that heavy equipment. Right. But those men, and, and as you pointed out, the spirit, it blew everyone away. Yeah. Because here are the Americans itching for a fight, and here are the the Brits and the French and the Germans who have been sitting in trenches and just trying to stay alive for, for three years. And all of a sudden, here come the Americans with shotguns yelling and screaming. <laughs> shotguns with bayonets on the end of them. <laughs> He's not exaggerating. Not, not everyone had shotguns, but, but there but were shotguns happen. with bayonets on but, them. But also, Glenn, and this is something you and I have talked about, as important as the men and materiel, once the U.S. becomes a co-belligerent, it affects the financing of the war by the other allies, and Great Britain in particular, suddenly their banking system is not going to collapse, and that means... That's right. Wars take two things. They take blood, and they take treasure. And morally speaking, we always tend to think about the blood first, and, and we should. But when you're waging a war, there's always money involved. And by 1917, French and British credit was exhausted in the United States. Great Britain had loaned they had loaned out as much money to Russia and France as they had borrowed from the United States. Yeah, and that's not a good that's, balance sheet. No, it's not. It's not. And of course, so money was not flowing anymore. And with the United States, and and remember, this money was loaned to them by private U.S. banks, not by the U.S. government. Right. So when the U.S. government officially decides to get into the war, then the U.S. government will begin guaranteeing more loans for its co-belligerents, exactly. for its associates. And, and that props them up. Uh, because at that point also, the Russian Revolution had happened. Right. And Germany was able to transfer soldiers from its eastern front to its western front, which meant they were going to have a lot more guys, which means the Americans had to get there fast. And everyone was asking, will it be in time? Because right. that, that last German offensive almost worked. It almost worked, coupled with that re- reinstitution of uh, unrestricted submarine warfare. It right. comes very close. Right. Well, and I, would, and I would go ahead and add in a third thing here. Let's keep this financial uh, thread going. Once Russia is out of the war and there's a new communist power in there, is England going to have a good chance of calling in those loans if they needed them for future credit? No. No. So, no. so, so it, you're absolutely right about, you know, German troops being pulled back, other American troops are coming in. What keeps them afloat, what keeps Britain afloat, is we're able to pay our factory workers yep. basically because we now have sound credit and can continue to arm the troops. Because if you can't arm them, like we said, they're, they're just a bunch of guys eating food. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which you're also having to pay for. In a foreign land. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, so so the financial aspects of the war greatly improve for the Allies when America comes in. And you know, that that's the interesting thing, too, is when America comes in, something you'd pointed out earlier, I say earlier like it was last week, about 10 <laughs> minutes ago, was um, quote unquote what the war was fought for yeah. morphs from, you know, it was to defend Serbia. Great Britain oh, Great specifically Britain. Oh. entered the war only over a scrap of paper, scrap, as it was referred to at the time. A scrap of paper to de- to defend Belgium's neutrality. <laughs> that was it. 
And over the course of the war, because there's so much sacrifice and it doesn't end by Christmas like everyone thinks it will be, then the sacrifice in terms of blood and of money gets so high that it has to be for something for civilization against the forces of evil and tyranny. The Germans are absolutely demonized. And what does Wilson say in his address to Congress? This is a war to make the world safe for democracy. Germany is demonized because you always demonize the enemy. That's what you do. Always. But in effect, is Germany that much different from Great Britain, that much different from France? Uh, no, it isn't. Well, it, yes and no. Well, yes and no, <laughs> but, but specifically in the, in the saying their evil part. I mean, th- these are all... Believe me, there's a big difference, gentle listener to this podcast, between the German Empire and the Third Reich. That is... A very big difference. I'm going to ask you to say that again. (laughs) There is a big difference between the German Empire and the Third Reich, as Glenn asked me to say again. I mean, because one is a racist Nazi ideology that overtly says, we are here to purify the world for our race. That and that's what is said, and then they try to implement it. The German Empire, and this is where I'm getting the German Empire and, and say the British Empire aren't that different. They're both, in effect, constitutional monarchies. Both have a democratically elected House of Representatives, you know, called different things, that are, right. and, and then a theoretical monarch who really, in a lot of ways, is a figurehead. Right. They're not that different. And Germany is no more racist than England at the time. No, not at all. That, so, that's not necessarily a ringing endorsement of England or Germany. <laughs> Well, in, 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 or France, for in, that in matter. France. In, in, yeah, because all of these places have empires. They all have colonies they're exploiting. France is the closest thing to a true republic. It's the French Republic. Yes. Now, in, in Germany, the, the Kaiser does have a lot more control over the state apparatus than, right. than the British. But, but he's not an autocrat. Does. He can't he's, just rule by fiat, he can't. by decree. But the, the real difference comes in is that England is merry old England. The German Empire is relatively young. It is. And it Very was young. As is Germany itself. As is Germany as a this nation is, itself. Germany has not been a cohesive, solidified nation, but for about, well, really, it's the 1870 Franco-Prussian War about that really years. solidifies it. And there were wars of unification during the, the 50s and 60s, but it's 1870 when puts they, a stamp on it. And who decides to be in charge of the German Empire? The Prussians. It could have just <laughs> as easily been the Bavarians, and we wouldn't have had all this trouble, and everyone would just drink beer and be happy. But no, we had to put the Prussians in charge of the central nation in Europe, and because of that, the militaristic views tend to permeate the monarchy, the aristocracy, right. and the elected legislature, and obviously the military. So. Yeah, and I'm about to take a hard left into into German national character, and I'm going to try not to. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say a couple of sentences. <laughs> because, but, but you're right. Because, because the Prussians are hegemons in this new Germany, they give the world the impression that we still have in a lot of ways of Germany. This militaristic mm-hmm. marching in step and being very good at fighting but not winning wars. <laughs> but, but in reality, you know, Germany is a, is a patchwork. It's, it's many different cultures. And you mentioned, you know, the, the Bavarians. You know, there, there is another side of Germany that is steeped in poetry, that is steeped in uh, more hedonistic pleasures or contemplation and philosophies. I mean, before World War I, before the Kaiser, Germany does have a reputation abroad as, oh, it's a land of poets and teachers. Yeah. Because it did. That's where you sit... That's where the aristocracy sent their children to university, was in the Germ- one of the German states. Exactly, one of the German states. So, so it's very interesting that that Prussian hegemon in the new German state, in the new German empire, is then what fuels this expansion into an empire in the late 19th century mm-hmm. and, 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 the battle, and, the, and the naval race with England. 
but let's. But this is segueing nicely. England, Germany, racist. So, <laughs> Belgium. <laughs> as Glenn said, the UK goes to war over a scrap of paper. Belgium, as the nation it was in 1914, is also a relatively new creation mm-hmm. from European diplomacy. And its neutrality was theoretically guaranteed by all the co-signers of the, the treaty. Including Germany. Including Germany. And Germany knows this. Germany knows that they could go to war with France and just attack through the traditional ways instead of sweeping through Belgium, and England will have no reason to join the fight. Yet they choose to do it anyway because they're married to the Schleifen plan that says you must swing wide right and encircle Paris. And adherence to a plan uh, <laughs> it's both a blessing and a curse for Germany over and over again. They adhered to it when they shouldn't have, and they didn't when they should have. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and so, so they do. They, they violate Belgium's neutrality by swinging through it, which brings England into the war. But there were those in the German general staff who even at the time were saying, let's don't do this. Let's don't attack. Let's don't try to do a swift knockout of France. Instead, let's do a holding action on our border with France and go east and, and take, knock Russia out because there wasn't all. It's always plan about for Russia. Yeah, yeah, I mean it is. It's, 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 in a way, it's always about Russia. It is because everyone fears them being fully mobilized and just slowly moving and being unstoppable because they've got more men than anyone. A lot, a lot yeah. more. And when this is brought up in the general staff circles at the start of the war, you know, I think it's uh, Moltke. The younger, younger. Yeah, the yes. younger. So no, we can't possibly upset the railroad tables. Well, in fact, there was an alternate railway table set up to mobilize and go east instead of west. Right. So that was an excuse of expedience. Well, well in I, fact, I, there had been plans thrown up to do that first. And, you know, how would that have played out? One can only play our favorite game of what if. Right, <laughs> yes. So we're talking, we're focusing on the, on the European aspects, too, a little bit here. Because at the beginning, it was just another European war. It was. And slowly... But because of the, all the colonies that all these European powers had, it spread, and the indigenous peoples who had been established as a military force primarily for peacekeeping and police duty then began to fight one another in Africa, in India, in, right. in the Far East. And then if we've mentioned the, the, the struggle in the Atlantic gets us involved, so right. there's more and more things. Japan actually joins the Allies so that they can take a big old whopping at China, and then they say, we're done. They, ba- they basically get the Korean Peninsula and parts of Manchuria, and they say, we're out, and we'll have a seat at the peace conference. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's it an is. opportunity. It's yeah. an opportunity. And when the, when the war finally winds down, Europe has, in effect, destroyed the old order. That which it sought to preserve and protect is gone. The Russian Empire is gone. Right. The German Empire is gone. The Ottoman Empire is gone. The Austro-Hungarian Empire is gone. And who... Is, who, who is in the best position to become hegemon of the world at that point, the United States, but doesn't. I mean, Wilson presses for the League of Nations, we don't join, and we kind of step back and say we're done with European and world affairs. And then 30 years later, something else happens, or 20-something years later. Well, yeah, and and, see, oh, and okay, so maybe we we save a... Treaty of Versailles, Versailles for an podcast for an entire podcast. We kind of need to probably <laughs> write that write you down on the on in April of next year. We'll do a centenary of the Treaty of Versailles. But but as a lead up to that, Wilson had avoided having the United States being a quote ally, so that he wanted to at least maintain this U.S. ability to act as a third party arbitrator, 
when the peace when when the peace effort does come and he brings his 14 points he wants the war to be <laughs> what did and what does Clemenceau say about that Francis leader God only needed 10 commandments Wilson needs 14 <laughs> points <laughs> the, the, the he British, was derisive <laughs> he was British and French were not fond of Wilson coming in trying to play the the moral upstart which is what he was doing yeah we, we, exactly and they rejected basically all of his points uh, except for the League of Nations which was a throw the bone and then all of this work. And Wilson, again, sees the United States entry as a way to bring peace in an aftermath and to create the league. And when he gets home, he tries to get the, le- the, the treaty and therefore the league approved by Congress through the Senate. And it doesn't happen, not because America thinks the treaty is bad, not really, right. but because it's Republican versus Democrat in the Senate. And it's a way for the Republicans in the Senate to thumb their nose at the Democratic president. Yep. That's, in effect, what it comes down to. Now... We would also be remiss, we've been talking a lot of, you know, grand geopolitical stuff mm-hmm. here. We'd be very remiss if we did not bring it down to a personal level. And what better way to do that than to reference one of your and my favorite authors, J.R.R. Tolkien. What? <laughs> who, who many of our <laughs> listeners may know is the author of The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Cimmerian, and, uh, well, his son's kind of unfinished tales because they're unfinished. Right. But, uh, <laughs> as some of you may or may not know, beloved author J.R.R. Tolkien fought in World War One and was at the Battle of the Somme, which is one of the worst. It's the worst day in British military history. Because it's, what, 20,000 casualties on the first day alone? On the first day. That's one day, people. But uh, Tolkien was there, and if any of you have read The Lord of the Rings or seen the movies, you know that it is replete with battle scenes. The book probably deals more with what we would call the home front, the scouring of the Shire, that when that chapter in The Lord of the Rings where, you know, the Company of the Rings comes, finally comes back home, and they see what it is like to have their homeland ravaged by war. And home's different. Home's different. What you exactly. fought for right. is doesn't exist. Exactly. It's, it's exactly. Something new has come into place. And there are many critics and interviewers who would, you know, he lived in Britain through World War II and the bombings and the destruction and that, and so that must have informed his writing. And they would ask him, so didn't that inform your writing? So in his response, <laughs> so here we go, I'm going to read this little quote here. In later years, Tolkien indignantly declared that those who searched his work for parallels to the Second World War were entirely mistaken. Quote, one has indeed personally to come under the shadow of war to feel fully its oppression. But as the years go by, it now seems often forgotten that to be caught by youth in 1914 was no less hideous an experience to be evolved in 1939 and the following years. By 1918, all but one of my close friends were dead. So that's his way of saying that if you're looking for the war that influenced my views is the one that I was actually in. Right. You know, the one where I lost all of my close friends, save one. And he was wounded and spent a long time in the hospital. Spent a long time in the hospital. Uh, and, and that's, of course, where he began composing the, the, the Lay of Luthien uh, that later becomes the, the, the Simorian that later becomes the Lord of the Rings, it's, it's, all the things. But, but this monumental work that, that we see he is famous for begins in the trenches at the psalm. And, you know, when he says that quote, all of my friends say, you know, but one, we're dead. Uh, Tolkien was in a club called the TCBS Club. Uh, or I think that was the initials. Anyway, uh, I will let you look that up yourself, what it means, because it's a, it's a little tea club that he and some friends had. But 
he and some friends from Oxford and some of his other university friends, they were writers, artists, poets, and they'd all gotten together and formed this little informal society. And, and their vow, and he, in, in, his, in his interviews, Tolkien says, you know, how naive we were, but, you know, we had all vowed that each of us would create a work of art that retold the story of England, that, that redefined what England was. You know, he says, he says, you know, grandiose things. We were such naive young men. He says, and then World War I happens. And every other person that was in that little club with him dies in the war except one guy. Not wounded. Di exactly. Not wounded. Dies. dies. And Tolkien says later, uh, and as a matter of fact, you can reference the quote in the excellent biography of uh, Tolkien that Humphrey Carpenter wrote. Uh, he says, when he, he got a letter from the other surviving guy saying, letting him know so-and-so just died in the battle, whatever battle it was. Uh, but he says, you know, that knowing I'd made a promise to all these other men, my friends, I'd made a promise to my friends that we would create something and they die. He said that just reinforced, I've got to do something. I can't. That was his personal, what have we been fighting for? If this original thing we thought to preserve is to be preserved and now it's gone, now what have I been fighting for? Well, now there's at least something I can do personally. I can actually write this thing that I promised my dead friends I would write. And he has to speak for them in doing so. He has so. to speak for them in doing so, yeah. So when you read the memoirs and the letters and, and the literary works that did come out of that First World War, you see that that's a theme. Men and women other than Tolkien say, I now felt I had to speak. You know, that generation is often referred, after the war, is called the lost generation because they didn't know what to do because of all the devastation and what, what is, and that's true. There was certainly a sizable portion of people that were affected that way. But there were also those who said, well, because we are lost, I've got to find a way. Mm -hmm. And you know, they do so. And it's and it's amazing. So that's a little down in the trenches personal look, because you know, down in the trenches is sadly where it happened, where where most of it happened and most of the horror for the men serving, the men and women serving. You know, there's that episode referencing yet another <laughs> British pop culture thing. Blackadder. <laughs> the, the, the series that you should all watch. But the fourth the fourth season. Blackadder right. goes forth. Uh, he's serving as a captain in the in the World War One trenches, and this and I know you've probably read some of these same criticisms. There are a couple of uh, more old school British critics and historians that have started criticizing Blackadder season four, specifically Blackadder season four, because it depicts life in the trenches unrealistically, and it paints an unflattering picture of the British generals who all they did was throw their men into no man's land, assaulting machine guns, and well. That's because that's what happened. Well. Yes, more than that happened, but that did happen. I mean, that's why there were 20,000 casualties on the open day of the Somme, is you're, you're advancing against an entrenched enemy with machine guns and artillery, and you keep doing it. Well, they did went one direction, then they went the other direction. <laughs> well, yeah, the, yeah. The, yes. Now, I'm I'm one of those people. I'm I'm not criticizing Blackadder because <laughs> because you love because it. I love it, and it's true. But I think also a lot. Obviously, with the centenary coming up, I've spent the last year reading a ton of stuff, and, right. and some of it popular and some of it scholarly. And it seems to be there's a couple of different themes that are coming out. One is because it was a misquote referring especially to the British generals that it was lions led by donkeys. And early in the war that's true, but as the war evolves and these attacks, again, it was the trenches, but in the last six months of the war, the allies are out of those trenches and advancing and Haig, who I believe is who really yeah, Blackadder's yeah. making fun yeah, of, that is. Haig was considered a butcher, but you also have to remember, looking at the memoirs at the time, after the war, his men wrote poems about him, and they loved him, and they lauded him, and in the last six months of the war, he led the British Army 
to what in effect was its greatest military victory after he had taken through the greatest right. military defeat. You know, that last six months, they were killing more enemy, taking more ground, and maneuvering better than they had at any other time. And, and to be fair, it's because they did learn. They learned lessons. They, they, new things are being employed. You know, right. new tactics, the infiltration tactics, the tank helps, aerial support helps, rolling bombardments Lots help. Of All of those things are maybe not perfect, but they're starting to use the combined arms to support that yes, it's, suicidal it's, frontal assault. And lo and behold, it can work. It's not quite as suicidal right. as it was right. in 1915. Yeah, right. It, it's You're still going to take casualties, but by now, with the Americans in, in 18, mm-hmm. he can afford to do that. He can afford to go, well, yeah, we're still going to take casualties, but we're still going to be able to keep on the offensive, and that's what we've got to do. Right. It's right. sort of like Grant at, you know, at... At Cold Harbor. At Cold Harbor yeah. and then Petersburg. you got to keep going. Yes, it's horrible. you got to keep doing you gotta it. you got to keep doing it. You know, Tolkien writing Lord of the Rings that comes out of this, and, and a lot of the poetry that comes out of that war is very beautiful and very thought-provoking. Even poems that are about horrific things, like, uh, you know, uh, Wilfred Owen's... Uh, uh, They're still all about doing their duty, though. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, the yeah. The, the, the gas attack, which... Uh, and suddenly the name... I just read it the other day, and it leapt from my mind. Uh, I'm They'll say et decorum est. Dulce et decorum est. Yes, Dulce is sweet and proper it is. You know, that, that's, that's, that's about men dying of chlorine gas attack. And it's beautiful. It's beautifully horrible. It's beautifully horrible, horrible beautiful. yeah. The poetry has given us so much the idea of what World War I was, and that has begun to speak for the war, for the generations mm-hmm. that fought it, and everything. And I think, on one hand, it creates a intellectual depth to understand the war. On the other hand, I think it's incredibly unfair. Because the average Tommy in the trenches is probably not represented by an officer writing poetry. Right, right. If you If you want to know about some of the things the soldiers like, I will invite you to Google a little tune called Mademoiselle from Armentiers. <laughs> and make sure if you are underage that you get an adult's permission because it has a lot of words in it. It is hilarious. <laughs> and I'm glad you specified that because I'm sure there are plenty of tween listeners to this podcast. Yeah, exactly. It's almost exclusively. <laughs> but, yes. you know. But, but those, not, those but, the war. Yeah. I mean, some people say that the song, the soldier song for yeah. World War One, is the real poetry of the war. And often it is. I mean, yeah. And but I but another good look at that, though, that I would say, even though it's from the German point of view, is really just from a guy in the trenches, and that's All Quiet on the Western mm-hmm. Front by Eric Maria Remarque. Both the the earlier was it twenties or thirties version, and the ver- the TV version with Ernest Borgnine and uh, John Boy Walton. <laughs> I know <laughs> from, his from name. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember his name. All Which was a still a very good version. Yeah, of. yeah, it was a very good version. But the thing is, both of those you could just transfer the insignia and substitute the word you know British for German because there's German troops, and it's really just sort of here's what it's like for a common soldier. That's what makes that book a uniformity of experience. Exactly, it's a yes. uniformity of experience. You can look at that and go. And these are just guys who are fighting because their, their country's been attacked. They're fighting because the guy beside me needs my help. Right. They're fighting because this is what you do. I mean, it, it's, it really does take it down to a just, this could be any army, any nationality. This is what it's always like for the guys on the ground. And that's why that's a work of brilliance to me. It, it is. And, you know, those guys, when you look at the accounts of November 11th, 1918, when the guns fell silent. Generally speaking, there wasn't screaming joy, there wasn't celebration, there wasn't running into no man's land for hugs. VE Day in Europe, there's wild partying, drinking, at least on the Allied side. Right. Yeah. Well, well and yeah. a lot of the Germans yeah, too. Yeah, a lot of Germans too, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but there's, a, there's a feeling of, yes, we did it. Whereas in World War I, it's, 
We survived. Yeah, we made it. We survived. It's and it's it's over. Yeah, that feeling I think is the stark difference between the two. And and I think with that ending, it might be a good place to end the podcast. <laughs> All of you, now that it's over, you can sit down and take a breath and go. Thank God that's over. Then Again with Ken and Glenn is produced by the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. 